This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. Do you never get tired of a good whodunit? Then if you like an immersive mystery and hidden object gameplay as I do, then I'm sure you'll love June's Journey. It's something that whenever I have a spare moment, I'm ploughing my way through. I like things that sharpen my brain and observational skills, and I've found this to be just the ticket. In fact, I'm a bit hooked on it. In a setting of the glamorous Roaring Twenties, you play as June Parker, an amateur detective who, following the mysterious deaths of her sister Claire and her brother-in-law Harry, makes her way to New York to take care of her niece Virginia, and to try to get to the bottom of what happened to her sister. June finds herself investigating a whole series of mysteries in her quest, a quest that's full of twists and turns around almost every corner. And whilst playing as her, you'll put your own powers of observation to the test, sharpen your sleuthing skills whilst doing so, and relish the thrill of solving the case. You'll search for hidden clues to solve mystery after mystery across thousands of vivid and immersive scenes, with danger and romance in full force in this thrilling adventure. Free to download, June's Journey is highly playable, very fluid and slick looking, with great attention to detail, and with new chapters every week, there's always a new case waiting to be cracked. Whether you're craving a good mystery, or just need to get away for a while, June's Journey is the perfect game for you. So like it's 30 million fans and counting, why not kick back, relax, and let your inner Sherlock escape? Ready to awaken your inner detective? Download June's Journey free today on the Apple App Store or Google Play. Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, where each time around from my spare room in North Wales, I seek to bring you those tales of true crime that you aren't usually likely to find elsewhere, the obscure and often long forgotten, unfamiliar tales that I scour all corners of the UK and Ireland to find. The I is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, the mog who sleeps like a log peaks, the true crime enthusiast cat is right here as ever. You can probably hear his little bell if you listen carefully. Never far from me. And the most imperative part of the whole operation, you wonderful enthusiasts complete the triangle. Fabulous as ever having you joining us here today, folks, which I thank you kindly for doing so. And I hope, as always, that as you tune in, you tune in good with you and yours all safe and all well. So. Because here we're continuing with our opening tale of the series, I'll skip my usual pre-tale preamble here, I'll give you a bit of a rest from it for this time, and quicker than Boris Johnson with a bottle opener, we'll get right down to the concluding part of the series opener, a tale that I've entitled 
the creature who stalked the cobbles. Now as I do mention whenever we have a multi-parter here on the show, and you have to because although I know the majority aren't, some people really are denser than Jupiter aren't they? If you haven't already yet listened to part one of the tale, then I'd advise that you stop here now and head over and listen to that first. Otherwise, this will make as much sense as James Corden's appeal does to me. If you've heard that already and you're champing at the bit waiting for the conclusion, then we shall get to it just after a slight recap. In the opening episode then, we heard the horrific exploits of an early morning masked rapist that waged a campaign of sex attacks across the north and northwest of England in the early 1980s. The victims were predominantly attacked in their own homes, often in the presence of their children, in early morning attacks that were punctuated with threats and violence, the offender simply smashing his way into the property through sheer brute force. Several attacks had been linked across at least four counties over a period of years, although punctuated by gaps of 18 months and three years respectively, leading to a multi-force operation codenamed Operation Osprey. Following a television appeal, two callers contacted the Osprey incident room and gave police the name of 31-year-old habitual criminal named Andrew Longmire who police discovered indeed fitted the bill of the rapist to a T. When Longmire's house was searched, he was long gone, feeling the heat on himself, but forensic evidence was found at his home that proved conclusively that he was indeed the elusive Coronation Street rapist as the attacker had come to be monikered. Longmire was now the subject of a massive manhunt, with police the length and breadth of the country looking for him. Although his partner and child had returned after a few days, Longmire remained at large, but could be pinpointed by his fingerprints to the scene of a burglary in the Shropshire town of Ludlow, a burglary from which a shotgun and a large quantity of ammunition had been taken. Police now had a dangerous and prolific rapist at large, one who was now also armed with a shotgun, and he had to be stopped before he struck again, them fearing that perhaps now, his escalating violence would go too far and someone would be killed. But to do so, they would have to first find him. And where was he? Well, let's find out, shall we? The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including those of a sexual nature, that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So please use your discretion whilst you're listening in all. With that in mind, Please join the True Crime Enthusiast for the second and concluding part of the opening tale of Series 7, a tale I've entitled, The Creature Who Stalked the Cobbles. As officers from four police forces searched for him, the man who would become Britain's most wanted man was still making his way around the country, staying in small hotels or guest houses, and living off the proceeds of burglaries whilst regularly changing vehicles that he would either abandon or torch after a few days' use. This travelling exhaustively around the country did not deter Longmire from continuing with his catalogue of sex attacks, however, and later that November, he broke into a house in Exeter, in Devon, indecently assaulting the female occupant. By this time, consultation with the Crown Prosecution Service had facilitated police to take the unusual step 
of issuing a photograph and full description of Andrew Longmire to the media, which was released at the start of December 1987, with police stressing that he was wanted in connection with a large series of offences in the northwest of England, and that he was categorically not to be approached, as it was believed he was armed and dangerous. Dangerous indeed he was. I'm sure that you kind of know that already, of course. But just how dangerous was demonstrated in an incident at Leeds Railway Station in the early hours of Saturday the 12th of December 1987. At 2.40am, two officers on duty that evening responded to a call from a woman passenger who, upon heading to use the ladies' restroom there, had discovered a man asleep in one of the cubicles and who had disturbed her by his menacing behaviour when she woke him and remonstrated with him for being in there. When the officers had arrived and looked into the restroom, the man, a scruffy-looking, long-haired figure wearing grubby-looking light blue double denim, and that's a look that only shaky can pull off that, isn't it? The man was still asleep there, and when he was woken and told to move, after all, it was a female restroom, the man picked up the hold all he had with him, and made his way out with the two officers. Asked to identify himself, the man claimed that he had no identifying documents on him, but gave his name to the officers as one John Seamark, who had been born in Wrexham on the 12th of May 1956. He told them that he was on his way to York, but had missed his connecting train to Harrogate in North Yorkshire, where his car was parked. Invited to wait in the platform waiting room whilst a check on the details he had given was made. Whilst the officers' backs were turned, the man reached into the hold all he was carrying, and when one of the officers turned back to face him, he was confronted with a shotgun pointed at his face. As both officers instinctively fled for their safety, the man fled in the opposite direction and was away off the platform and out of the station. The following morning, acting on the off chance that perhaps some of the information the man had given officers had been true, a check at the station car park at Harrogate revealed an abandoned red Morris Marina car that was filled with a plethora of items, including a well-worn pair of trainers and a newspaper from the Exeter area with a for-sale advert circled in it. A PNC checker, the registered owner of the vehicle, revealed that it had been the advert circled for the very same Red Morris Marina, which had been sold only a week previously in Exeter. A check of burglaries in the Exeter area around the same time revealed one that had occurred only the night before this sale, at which a trainer print had been left, where the intruder had forced their way into the property through the back kitchen door. Not only was the trainer print from the Exeter crime scene a perfect match for the print from the trainers discovered in the abandoned vehicle in Harrogate, but the vehicle was also found to be covered in the fingerprints of Andrew Longmire, who was certainly still armed with a shotgun and about to demonstrate further just how increasingly dangerous he was, because he now upped his violence. Six days after the incident at Leeds Railway Station, at 10.30am on the morning of Friday the 18th of December, a 26-year-old woman returning from a shopping trip to her home in the town of Blackburn in Lancashire spotted at the corner of her eye a large, powerfully built, long-haired man wearing sunglasses 
leaning up against the wall 50 yards or so from her home, but thought nothing more of this as she opened the front door and carried her shopping in. About two minutes later, the woman was in the hallway of her home when the back kitchen door crashed open and she was confronted by a masked intruder who held a small but sharp knife in his hand. As she issued a brief scream, the intruder told her, One more word, and I'll cut your throat. Although the brave woman tried to escape through the front door, her attacker grabbed her and forced her upstairs, where, as she was struggling against him, causing defensive knife wounds to her hands, he then stabbed her viciously in the back, puncturing her lung, slashed her, and then stabbed her once to the left side of the neck. The man then tied her hands behind her back and then savagely raped her before fleeing. Seriously injured, the woman managed shortly after this to free herself and raise the alarm. From the description of the rapist and his methods that she was able to give officers from her hospital bed a couple of hours later, they were in no doubt that this had been an Osprey offence and Longmire had struck again. Inquiries in the local area also revealed that just 30 minutes before the attack, a man matching to a T the description of Longmire had been seen at a scrapyard just 200 metres from the woman's home, where he'd paid cash for a pale blue Morris Marine van. Registration number YCB572M and that a man of a similar description had stayed at a local guest house the night before, a man who was confirmed to be Andrew Longmire when a check revealed a match with his fingerprints from fingerprints the occupant had left in the hotel room. By now having earned himself the title of Britain's Most Wanted Man, as 1987 became 1988, Longmire still evaded capture despite the massive manhunt for him, although possible sightings of him ranged from as far as the south coast of the country right up to the Scottish borders, with several in Wales and even possible sightings of him in Northern Ireland. But he was certainly still in the Manchester area on the 5th of January 1988, because that evening, the blue Morris Marina van he'd purchased in Blackburn was found on fire in Mill Hall Road in the Chadderton area of Oldham. The previous day, he'd also been in the city of Stoke-on-Trent in Staffordshire, where, dressed in his usual attire, a masked Longmire forced his way into the home of a 23-year-old woman. At knife point, whilst the young woman was holding her 18-month-old child, he forced both of them upstairs, where he then raped the woman in front of her son. Throwing a dressing gown at her, he then forced her downstairs, before changing his mind and forcing her back upstairs where he raped her for a second time and also committed a serious sexual assault against her. The child was present throughout the entire 30 minute ordeal. It doesn't even bear thinking about does it? In the wake of the escalating violence and horror of these assaults another blaze of publicity was now made and on the incident desk feature of the BBC's Crime Watch UK, that's a show that used to be on many years ago, and when it was, it did real wonders, before it was cancelled to make way for absolute horseshit, like Michael McIntyre's The Wheel. What on earth is all that crap about? 
In the edition broadcast on the 12th of January 1988, Andrew Longmire's picture was broadcast to the watching public. It detailed pictures of him with and without the beard he wore, in case he'd attempted to alter his appearance by doing so, by shaving it off, and mentioned once again that he was wanted by police in Manchester in connection with a series of some 23 linked serious assaults, and was not to be approached as he was considered armed and extremely dangerous. This led to 70 plus calls to the Crime Watch studio alone, with viewers contacting and offering potential sightings of him from all around the country. But it still didn't lead to that crucial information that led police to him. But for Longmire, the end game had begun. We skip forward now to eight days after the Crime Watch UK appeal, on Wednesday, the 20th of January 1988, and to the town of Bebbington in the Merseyside borough of the Wirral. 31 year old Merseyside Police Constable Ken Owen was part of a two officer patrol vehicle on duty that evening and recalled many years later, I quote, It was strange because when we came on duty we sat down and the sergeant read out this wanted poster for Andrew Longmire, who was wanted in Greater Manchester for attacks on women. He'd been seen at a bed and breakfast in Wrexham, and my mum and dad lived there at the time, and so I said, half joking, we should look for him. I went out in the car, and I wasn't with my normal colleague, but with Derek Murphy, who was an ex-para. We drove down into the town, and it was about 12.20am. As we were passing the car park, there was a van parked with its headlights on and the windscreen wipers on, and it wasn't raining, so we pulled in. Pulling into the car park at the junction of Barlow Avenue and Bebbington Road, which still stands there today, PC Owen got out of the vehicle and spotted a man asleep in the driver's seat. I opened the door and said, All right, the usual things, is this your car, and so on, he continued. The man, groggy from being woken, claimed to officers that he was waiting there for a mate of his, and when asked by the officer his name and where he lived, he gave the name John Seamark and gestured towards some houses across Bebbington Road, although he could not provide the exact address when he was asked it. Unhappy with this man, PC Owens headed back to the patrol car and performed a PNC check on the registration plates of the blue transit van, but the registration number CWT359T came back as belonging to a white Datsun model registered in Yorkshire. In fact, the number plates had been stolen and were affixed over the existing ones with elastic bands. PC Owen continued, recollecting. So, I'm out again and my colleague's standing by the open door. I said, have you got any ID? And he said yes, and leans over, and to my horror, I saw the slow movement of a double-barreled shotgun being pointed at Derek's stomach. Your arse would proper go, wouldn't it? Seamark had clocked the glance between PCs Owen and Murphy that they potentially had a thief there and had reacted. PC Owen went on. It flashed through my mind, cheeky so-and-so, that's not loaded. And at that split second, Derek grabbed the barrel, trying to push it away, and the chap pulled the trigger and the blast went up the side of my face and just missed my right ear. Next minute, 
Derek is wrestling with him and hauling him out onto the car park. The chap got up quick and he fires the gun at my colleague, but he'd curled up and it missed him. It was just like slow motion as he picked up the gun and fired at Derek as he lay on the floor. I thought he was dead, but suddenly I heard Derek scream. So this chap then runs back to the van and I dive in the police car. I back up and he then comes out again with a gun, having reloaded it. PC Owen, reacting instinctively to save his colleague, then drove the police car at the gunman in a bid to stop him, pinioning his legs between the car and the van before reversing, and still the man pointed the shotgun, so in PC Owen's words, I decided it had to be foot to the floor time again, and drove at him, sending him over the bonnet. Derek then leapt on him and managed to wrestle him to the ground. After a hell of a struggle, we had him subdued. The guy was a bodybuilder and he was a big guy, but we managed to get the handcuffs on him only on the first ratchet though, because his wrist was so big. He was so powerful, he was unbelievable. I had never seen anything like it before. We got on the radio and the ambulance and backup arrived and took him off to hospital. When we searched the van, he had another sawn-off shotgun, a knife, an axe, and a balaclava. We didn't know who he was at that time, he just had this blank expression on his face, and never said a word. It was only afterwards we found out he was the most wanted man in Britain at that time. Legend! Full-on TJ Hooker that, eh? The manhunt for Andrew Longmire was at an end. Interviewed by the Bolton Evening News following the arrest, PC Owen continued. When we got to the hospital, we still didn't have a clue who we'd got. PC Murphy added, At one stage, he tried to get up off the trolley, although he was handcuffed to it with both hands, two sets of handcuffs. That didn't stop him. At one stage, he stood up and tried to walk out of the hospital with the trolley on his back, and he had just contempt for everyone around him. We didn't know who he was until we got to the hospital, and checks were made, and it was revealed to be Andrew Longmire. PC Owen furthered. The night before, it was read out to us when we came on that he'd been seen in the Wrexham area. I commented at the time that he's getting a bit close now, we'll have to start looking for him. Little did we know that night that we'd be fighting with him the following day. I think we were both very lucky. We both thought we were lucky to be alive and were elated we'd caught him. We each thought the other had been killed. If either of us had been on our own, we would have been dead. Undoubtedly, they both would have been, for it seemed that by that stage, Longmire would indeed have killed them without compunction. As luck would have it, they escaped with a slight concussion each, and PC Murphy had received a black eye. In April of the following year, both PCs Owen and Murphy received commendations and awards of merit for displaying courage of the very highest order, before in August 1989, each officer was awarded the Queen's Gallantry Medal for capturing Britain's most wanted man, pair of heroes. From his prison cell, Andrew Longmire even later made an official complaint against the pair, 
in an effort to tarnish these heroics, claiming that they'd used excessive force whilst arresting him, although this complaint went absolutely nowhere. And I think, fair dues, if someone fires a sawn-off shotgun at you twice, then you've got to take that motherfucker down any way you can. And if that means running him over, well, so be it. Sympathy comes between shit and syphilis, doesn't it? So, now in cuffs and under arrest, Longmire was taken from Arrow Park Hospital in Birkenhead, where he'd been treated for a head injury he'd received during his arrest, to Birkenhead Police Station, and from where he was collected by detectives from the Operation Osprey team, who had been informed of his arrest as soon as his identity was ascertained, and was taken to Lee Police Station. Here, over some three weeks of interviewing, in between charges being raised, Longmire was to almost freely admit each offence that was put to him, but showed not a hint of remorse for any of his victims. Instead, he more seemed annoyed at himself for getting caught for being outrun. One of the first things he said to Osprey detectives was, It's been a long road, hasn't it? But he could hardly have denied his crimes, really, for his guilt had been confirmed using what was then pioneering DNA technology. It was the first time Greater Manchester Police had used the process of DNA testing, and never before had one individual been linked to so many offences using the process. Pitchfork was of course the first, but that was just two. Longmire was positively linked to five of the rapes that forensic evidence had been left at. On Friday the 28th of October 1988, Andrew Longmire, dressed in a baggy dark sweater and blue jeans, appeared in the dock at Manchester Crown Court, where he pleaded guilty to all but two of the charges that he faced, these being the attempted murders of PC Ken Owen and PC Derek Murphy, charges which were ultimately allowed to lie on file. Brian Leveson QC, defending Longmire, said on his behalf that he did not seek to diminish the gravity of his crimes, but rather had pleaded guilty to save his victims the ordeal of giving evidence at trial. He furthered that it was important that all the victims could now be reassured that their attacker had been caught, and but for his admissions, some of the crimes would never have been solved. He had also asked for some 15 other offences from the previous year, including burglaries, thefts and possession of heroin to be taken into account. But after seeing the horrific looking array of knives and sharpened screwdrivers that Longmire had threatened his victims with, which were presented to the court by prosecuting counsel Rhys Davis QC, and after hearing the accounts of Longmire's terrible offences, how several of the victims had needed outside long-term psychiatric care to recover from their ordeals, how at least two had become pregnant following the assaults, and how a number of the victims had had to move home, their security and sanctuary there forever destroyed, there was no room whatsoever for mitigation or leniency. Psychiatric reports concerning examinations of Longmire that had been made whilst he was on remand awaiting trial were then presented to the court which consensually showed that although he did display an extremely disturbed personality with persistent perverted behaviour, there were no signs of a diagnosable mental illness within him. No Broadmoor beckoning there then. 
sentencing Longmire, presiding Mr Justice Rose told him, The horrifying catalogue of your crimes against women shows two separate campaigns of depravity between 1981 and 1988 spanning five separate counties. It is very clear that for many years you have been, and for very many years will continue to be, a grave menace to women. Andrew Longmire then received 11 life sentences for rape, as well as concurrent terms totaling 56 years, five each for four counts of attempted rape, five for indecent assault, 10 years for serious sexual offences, 7 years for using a firearm to resist arrest, and 14 years for discharging a shotgun at police. He showed no emotion when sentenced, and said nothing in reply before he was taken away to begin his prison term. Following the verdict, Detective Chief Superintendent Jim Patterson, the officer who'd led the hunt for Longmire, said when asked why he thought Longmire had committed such an appalling catalogue of offences. I think he started out as an early morning burglar who, while still under the influence of drink, became excited at scantily clad women in their homes. At the end of the day, it probably comes down to sheer lust. It's as simple as that. I am glad about the sentences he received, because so many of his victims were frightened to death that he would burst in on them again to rape. He added that he thought Longmire was undoubtedly responsible for several more attacks, chillingly, perhaps so many, that he truly lost count of them himself. But what drove a prolific burglar to commit two campaigns of such serious offences that he ended up with the title of Britain's Most Wanted Man? There's little to research concerning Andrew Longmire's life, but what can be pieced together is that he'd been born in Bolton in 1956. There are no reports of any siblings and no mention of his biological father, but his mother, Lillian, had remarried a man named Anthony Longmire when Andrew was young, and they had together run the Sweet Green Tavern on Bolton's Crook Street. But from an early age, Andrew showed signs of being a disturbed child. As early as him being a pupil at St Michael's Church of England Primary School in Green Lane, in the Bolton suburb of Great Lever, he became a prolific thief, which his mother and stepfather would reimburse the victims for to avoid the boy getting into trouble, and which worked for several years. However, at age 10, Andrew burgled his own school, a crime which he was prosecuted for. He was sent to an approved special school in Shropshire following this, which his stepfather believed did him more harm than good, and after a couple of years here, Andrew returned to the family home in Great Leavers, Loxham Street. Here, he worked only sporadically in manual roles such as builder's labourer, preferring instead to gain an income through theft, gaining several convictions for this, as well as one of indecent exposure in 1973. Shortly after this, Longmire left Great Lever to move up to Blackpool for a period, before in April 1975, he returned to the Bolton area and married his 19-year-old then-girlfriend, Sandra Hurst, with the couple settling down to live in the Lancashire town of Kearsley. The marriage soon broke down, however, and Mr and Mrs Longmire saw little of their son after this. Instead, 
the pattern for Andrew Longmire's life had already been set. Always an early riser, he would head out in the mornings and commit burglary, often thinking nothing of travelling into different counties to do so. Never a successful thief really though. Longmire had had so many run-ins with police that he'd taken to adapting several different identities if he was ever stopped and questioned, using at various times the aliases Andrew Anthony, John Smith, Andrew or John Cook, Andrew or John Winstanley, Philip Joyce, and of course, John Seamark. The proceeds of any burglary would invariably be spent in pubs at lunchtime and evening drinking sessions, where Longmire, already a heavy drinker by the time he was in his twenties, would sink pint after pint. Reports about how much he would drink each day do vary, but through researching the tale, the estimate is consensually somewhere between 15 to even 30 pints a day. He'd begun drinking heavily like this in the mid-1970s, when he'd also begun bodybuilding, and by the early 1980s, the six-foot Longmire was a powerfully built 15 stone, enjoying throwing his weight about and starting fights in several of the pubs he used to frequent in the Salford area he by that time lived in with his girlfriend, Patricia Winstanley. As I said before, he was never a master criminal this one though, and had served at least two custodial prison sentences by 1987. When, when released from this, he stepped up his horrifying campaign of burglary rape and violence with a vengeance. Andrew Longmire remains a serving Category A prisoner to this very day, now in his 34th year of imprisonment. On the 24th of November 1989, his plea for a fixed prison term to his sentence failed at London's Court of Appeal, when a panel, chaired by Lord Chief Justice Lane, sitting with Mr Justice's Waterhouse and Alliot, ruled that an indeterminate sentence was necessary in Longmire's case because, after reading an account of the horrific crimes he'd been sentenced for, Lord Chief Justice Lane ruled, I quote, It is impossible to crystal gaze and judge when he can safely be released. I'd have no fault with that whatsoever, as I'm sure none of you listening would either. Well, I'd hope not anyway. By 2010, Longmire had served some 22 years of his sentence and technically could have by that time been eligible for a parole review. Coincidentally, however, it was around the same time that South Yorkshire Police were undertaking a cold case review of unsolved crimes from their force area and one that jumped out at them, one that forensic evidence had still been retained from, was a rape in the Sharrow area of Sheffield that had taken place on the 7th of September 1981, some 29 years before. The account that I opened the tale with in the previous episode. Now as I said at the start back then, samples of semen had been taken from the victim's jeans and the sofa at the time, but the technology to extract any DNA profile from them had only been developed in the years since the offence was committed. During the cold case review, the samples from the 1981 crime scene were tested and a DNA profile was obtained of the offender, which was subsequently tested against samples from those convicted of a criminal offence, which were stored on the National DNA Database. 
A 100% match came back as a result, for the DNA from the 1981 rape belonged to a still-serving prisoner, Andrew Longmire. On Thursday the 10th of June 2010, 54-year-old Longmire, his habitual long hair and beard by now grey, appeared at Sheffield Crown Court via video link from HMP Whitemore in Cambridgeshire and admitted a further charge of rape. The victim, by that time in her 50s, sat watching proceedings with her now grown-up daughter in the public gallery of Sheffield Crown Court, as for the first time in three decades, she finally had a face to put to the individual who had changed her life beyond recognition. As Longmire sat in a room at Whitemore Prison listening to the recorder of Sheffield, presiding Mr Justice Alan Goldsack QC, recounting the catalogue of offences that had earned him 11 life sentences, he showed no emotion as Mr Justice Goldsack described the Sheffield attack as a dreadful offence, further noting that the two victims of the attack had spent nearly three decades not knowing who was responsible. The judge addressed Longmire, saying, You raped a young woman in her own home and in the presence of her little child. You are a dangerous man. These victims in these other cases have known now, for very many years, that their attacker has been safely locked up behind bars. The victims in this case have had to live with the uncertainty of whether they would ever come face to face with you again. By not admitting this offence long ago, you've put this victim through considerable further trauma. Judge Goldsack then heard how Longmire was diagnosed as having a personality disorder as long ago as 1975, when he'd been described as a delinquent psychopath. More recently, psychiatric assessments had diagnosed him as having an antisocial personality disorder. Sentencing Longmire to a twelfth count of life imprisonment, but setting the minimum term he would have to serve at just two years. The judge told Longmire, Whether, after that, you are ever released will only happen if the various risk factors the parole board identified have been reduced, almost to the point of not existing at all. On the evidence I've seen, that's not likely to happen in the foreseeable future. You remain a life prisoner for the protection of the public long term. It brought some semblance of closure for a mother and daughter who had lived with the spectre of Longmire for almost 30 years. Speaking outside the court, his victim and her daughter told the gathered media that they were pleased they now had some answers and that they could finally be certain that Longmire was behind bars. Asked about the cold case review and the conviction of Longmire, and somewhat insensitively I thought also, how she felt about seeing his unmasked face for the first time. The woman said, Just numb, just angry. I'll never ever forget it. I think he just learned to live with it. But I hope it makes more women come forward though and do what I've done. You don't want it to happen to anybody else. The woman then added, He's too dangerous to be let out. Following the hearing, Detective Sergeant Ian Hardin from South Yorkshire Police's Cold Case Review Team, who had brought Longmire to justice, told the BBC, 
The offence of rape is always horrific for the victims. However, this is made even worse by the fact that this lady was in her home and she had a three-year-old child who witnessed the attack. This incident had a devastating effect on this woman, her husband and their child. The effects of what Andrew Longmire did that day have haunted this family ever since and I am so pleased that they have now seen justice done after all these years. When considering this case, though Longmire had been serving sentences which most people might assume would keep him in prison forever, the fact remained that he was technically eligible to apply for parole. This, along with the value of the victim gaining closure, persuaded us that it was in the public interest to proceed with this case. I'm pleased to say our colleagues in the CPS agreed with our view. This man's history shows him to be every woman's worst nightmare. He is a horrific and utterly prolific offender. Again, I couldn't fault that sentiment whatsoever. Every woman's worst nightmare was almost the title of the episode. His colleague Ray Hooley added, What's happened now will allow the victim to properly bring closure to this. She's carried on with her life thanks to the support of her husband and her family. But all that time, she's never known if the person sitting next to her on the bus or the person who passes her on the street is the man who raped her. What a horrendous thing that must be to have hanging over you constantly. My heart goes out to anyone who has. Less than a year after his 12th life sentence, however, in 2011, Longmire had launched a high court bid to have his prison status downgraded from Category A, citing a number of courses he'd carried out during his prison term, a degree he'd completed, and the fact that he was taking a master's degree in environmental policy, plus favourable references from prison staff to support his bid. He even admitted that he'd simply forgotten raping the Sheffield woman in her own home and in front of her young daughter in 1981. Yeah, like you'd imagine you forget stuff like that, eh? Wangmeyer claimed that this was why he only pleaded guilty to the attack the previous year and insisted that he was now a changed man. But he'd been turned down for reclassification in October 2010 after the Director of High Security Prisons put his references down to mere psychopathic charm, and pointed to the fact that he had only just admitted one of his many rapes as a sign he was still a danger, and was refused an oral hearing. However, at subsequent judicial review proceedings brought before London's High Court, Longmire's lawyers successfully claimed that this decision was unreasonable, when presiding Mr Justice Nicholl agreed with them that Longmire hadn't been given a fair chance to fight claims that he only admitted the Sheffield attack when faced with damning DNA evidence and had used his psychopathic charm to dupe professionals into accepting that he now posed a low risk to the public, concluding, This was a case where fairness did oblige the director to hold an oral hearing. Since the director took his decision without such a hearing, it must be quashed. Longmire was indeed subsequently reclassified from a Category A prisoner, first to Category B in 2013, and then moved to HMP Wymott in 2015 when he became a Category C prisoner 
although he was still not deemed eligible for parole. By June 2017, the then 61-year-old Longmire was still here, although having changed his name to Andrew Barlow by deed poll by this time, when he was arrested by Lancashire Police in connection with a rape in Great Lever, his hometown, back in April 1982. Four months later, on the 24th of October 2017, Bolton Crown Court heard that Longmire, who appeared at the hearing via video link from HMP Wymott in Lancashire, had burst into the then 16-year-old victim's terraced house after her parents had left for work at around 8.45am, one day in April 1982, while she was alone in her bedroom. Prosecuting counsel David Temkin QC said that the girl, who was still in bed at the time, heard someone climbing the stairs and pretended to be asleep. Longmire, then aged around 26, had taken a knife from the kitchen drawer downstairs, which she later recalled him holding before he'd threatened the petrified girl with it and pulled off her clothes before raping her. He told the court, She was not wearing her glasses throughout the incident, but could make out the shape of a person who she described as a large dark figure, and she could tell he was male. The court heard that she could tell that the man was wearing a sort of facial disguise and gloves, and Mr. Temkin continued that the girl had tried to call out for help during the assault, but Longmire had placed his fist into her mouth to ensure his silence while he had carried out the rape. Afterwards, he had demanded money from the girl, and although she'd handed over a pound note from her bedside table, this did not appear to satisfy Longmire, though he'd fled without staying to argue, after which the girl plucked up the courage to call for police. But she found that the telephone wire to the property had been cut, so she was forced to call on a neighbour to be able to raise the alarm. This 1982 case was actually considered as part of the original inquiry into the connected offences that Os Operation Osprey looked at, although no actual charge followed when Longmire was arrested in 1988. For although the forensic evidence was there in 1982, the technology at the time wasn't. But Longmire was linked to the case after Lancashire cold case detectives had reopened it in June 2017 armed with the years of advancements in forensic science, and he was subsequently arrested at HMP Wymott and brought to Preston Police Station to be interviewed about the attack. Although he denied all knowledge of the rape during his interviews, a comparison of Longmire's DNA against the samples retained from the April 1982 attack had been made. Would you care to put your wages on the result? It was a 100% match. When this was put to him, Longmire then admitted the crime, and that Tuesday in October, under the name Andrew Barlow, he pleaded guilty to the charge at Sheffield Crown Court. While Zara Bakri QC, defending, told the court that her client had suffered from a psychopathic disorder and had made positive changes while in prison, she was forced to add, The majority of the offences were all similar in nature, and he instructs me that, as such, he did not specifically remember this particular incident. I accept that such a comment is a highly disturbing one to make, but that is his explanation. 
he is acutely aware of the additional stress that this case, resurrecting itself after so many years, will cause the victim, a lady, who is doubtless asking, why did he not confess all those years ago? Disturbing indeed that, isn't it? Can you believe that? He did not specifically remember breaking into a house and raping a 16-year-old girl at knife point. Monstrous. The honorary recorder of Bolton, Judge Timothy Clayson, had no hesitation in issuing Longmire a 13th life sentence for the crime, again setting the minimum term of two years before he would be eligible to apply for parole. Judge Clayson told Longmire, this can rightly be described as a campaign of rape. Following the verdict, Martin Bottomley, the head of Greater Manchester Police's cold case unit, said, This is a great result for the victim, bringing her comfort and to further safeguard the public from this man, who in my view still poses a threat. Indeed, eh? And the conviction came in good time as well, for following an appeal after his 12th life sentence in 2011, the minimum tariff Longmire had been expected to serve was varied from the original 25 years, which had been decreed some years previously, to 20 years, theoretically meaning that he was then eligible for parole. However, Longmire's 13th life sentence had led him to be recategorized back to Category A status and refusal of the parole board to consider him for release. Now in his 34th year of imprisonment, he is unlikely ever to be released from custody, making the streets just that little bit safer. Now, news that Longmire, Barlow, whatever you want to call him, was now effectively in no danger of ever being released, must have brought so much comfort to his victims, who had been left with the legacy of his actions causing them to have to rebuild their lives, but all the while having that niggling thought at the back of their mind over every year that passes, that one day, the creature who brought so much darkness into their lives could again be free. A thirteenth life sentence, well, you would hope, would ensure that he never was. I can only imagine the relief that something like that must feel for those affected. But one victim of Longmire's, the woman who was attacked and stabbed by him in Blackburn in December 1987, does give a glimpse into this for us. In a letter to Martin Bottomley following Longmire's 2017 conviction, she wrote, I have been blessed, I have survived and had a productive and happy life thanks to the resolute support and love of my husband, family and friends. However, especially recently, I have had an underlying dread that he will be released and I know that this was getting very close. You are the reason I will sleep at night now and I just needed to thank you so very much. So now, thanks to your team, I'm able to forget about this and move on yet again. The name of Andrew Longmire is a name that's bounced around in my mind for many a year now, and although I didn't know the full ins and outs of his offending in case history off the top of my head until I sat down and properly researched the creature who stalked the cobbles, I did recall the name and the crimes, and well, 
This is a series of crimes that certainly should not be forgotten or unfamiliar at all, should they? For they're purely horrific, and I was always going to shoehorn this twat into a show episode at some point. I was struck totally by the sheer brazenness of Longmire, the smashing his way into a house he'd clearly surveilled beforehand, to know that there was no male occupant in at that time to challenge him, but more so, I think, by the sheer psychopathy of him, to have no compunction and to commit such horrific attacks, regardless of the presence of children as he was doing so, and to escalate in both the frequency of his attacks and the violence used within them. Well, where would he have stopped? There are pictures of Longmire up on the show's Instagram page, and you look at him, he's a chilling-looking individual, and you can't help but think, this guy could be capable of anything. I'm not really in any doubt myself that by December 1987, he would certainly have killed, he was prepared to. I believe, had they not fled, he would have undoubtedly shot to kill the pair of officers at Leeds Railway Station, and by a month later, after he'd repeatedly stabbed and slashed his victim, he went further than threatening with a shotgun, he actually fired at least twice from a range of just four feet at two police officers. It was only sheer fortune that Longmire did not kill, at least seriously wound or maim either officer when he did this. And their actions to restrain him? Well, I know the police in general have had their reputation kicked to bits of late, the likes of Cousins, or the pair who bandied around crime scene photos of those murdered sisters, or the umpteen Met officers who seem to have been accused of serious sexual offences of late all casting massive shadows over the police as a whole, but it isn't fair to tar them all with the same brush. For each of the scum, such as I've just described with those lot, there are tenfold, fiftyfold officers who are in the job doing good because it's what their lifelong ambition has been to and because it's what they're naturally suited to do. So, the actions of police constables Owen and Murphy to restrain and arrest Longmire even if you use a patrol car to incapacitate him, which I think was bang on and legendary to do, by the way, these are the actions of police officers who deserve respect and certainly the commendations for their actions that they received. Realistically, well, I'd bloody hope so anyway, Andrew Longmire has no prospect of release from prison. He's collected a further two life sentences in the past 12 years for historic attacks that he's pleaded guilty to, albeit only when faced with undeniable forensic evidence that proves his culpability in them. Bearing in mind the geographical scale of the offences that we know Longmire has committed, we can pinpoint sex crimes in the counties of Devon, Cheshire, Lancashire, Staffordshire, Greater Manchester, North and South Yorkshire, and the frequency of the offences that he's admitted, that police have linked to him, then it's not a massive jump to consider that he's done many others, is it? Perhaps they're crimes that, through no fault of anyone, have been misreported and not recognised as his handiwork, or perhaps the victims in some of the cases are today themselves sadly passed away, and these are cases long closed. But perhaps there is long-held evidence in storage from various unsolved crimes across the country, and that's not really too much of a reach, is it, saying across the country, that perhaps one day, depending of course on force commitments, funding and personnel available to do so, 
But who knows that perhaps one day a cold case review and corresponding forensic evidence may flag up yet another serious crime that Longmire is responsible for. Or another. Or another. I seriously think that with this individual, we're looking at a case not of if he has, but how many he has. How many more other crimes has he committed that he's keeping to himself, either out of sheer contempt or out of a genuine loss of memory, because there are so many, they blur into one. How many other cobbled streets has the creature that is Andrew Longmire stalked in the past, waiting to rape, perhaps even waiting to kill? As I said, look at his picture. This guy looks capable of anything. The Creature Who Stalked the Cobbles has been a tale that's been floating around the show's chalkboard since about the second series, but it was a classic case of it's just never seemed to have its time featuring in any of the series to date. So I thought, bollocks, it's definitely coming for the Series 7 opening one. It's a terrible tale, I'm sure you'll agree, and it could have fitted into any Monsters Of episode on its own, as Longmire is certainly an individual who deserves that title and deserves to end his days behind bars. I'd love as ever hearing your thoughts and feedback on the opening tale of the series, which by now I hope you know where you can do so. I've not changed anything during the break. The episode thread is up there in the show's Facebook discussion group, or you can do so through any of the show's social media links. You can email me, write to me about it, do me a macaroni picture, pay for a bloody skywriter if you want. I don't mind at all, folks. With that, I shall wrap up here now and crack right on with the next instalment, which certainly won't write itself. I thank you so very much for joining me here today, and all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Once again, it's great to be back here with you, it really is, and we've got a hell of a series coming up, I promise you. I'll catch you for the next time around. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.